0: The scope and impact of Black Lives Matter and the movement for Black Lives is difficult to overstate. Since 2012, the U.S. has seen thousands take to the streets and engage in direct action to draw attention to state and vigilante justice against black people. She welcomes UIC professor, activist, and author Bar- Barbara Ransby. Her new book is called Making All Black Lives Matter, Reimagining Freedom in the 21st Century, and it outlines the breadth and impact of this movement and its roots in black feminist politics and situates it squarely in the black radical tradition. Thank you for joining me, Barbara. Thank you for having me, Jill. Now, it would be fun fair to say that most people have at least heard the term Black Lives Matter, but how does your book use a different lens to dissect the history of the movement? Well, I'm a historian by training,
1: so I always ask what came before. Um, so I try to situate uh, Black Lives Matter and the movement for Black Lives, and I can make the distinction between the two in a minute, uh, but I try to situate it in a historical context. You know, movements don't just drop out of the sky, right? So, um, so there were protests, some of which were spontaneous, but It was a cumulative uh, sense of outrage uh, about police killings in black communities, but it was really informed by a set of black feminist uh, practices and organizations like Insight, Women of Color Against Violence. Critical resistance, which Angela Davis was ve- very involved in, which foregrounded this idea of a prison industrial complex, uh, long before Michelle Alexander was was writing eloquently about this. Uh, these feminist organizers were talking about prisons and police as critical issues in Black communities. So, so I situated in that historical context, and then I interview a lot of the young people. Uh, many of them women, many of them queer, many of them uh, feminist, who have been the leaders and have really deepened and widened the reach. of uh, of some of the protests that occurred around, you know, the deaths of Mike Brown and Ferguson and, and others across the country.
0: I do want to talk about the difference between Black Lives Matter and the movement for black lives, because I think a lot of folks may use the terms interchangeably. And that's not exactly right, is it? No, it's not. Uh, so uh,
1: Black Lives Matter, I think people know, a lot of people know the genealogy of, of the of the hashtag three, uh, women activists Alicia Garza, Opal Tometi, um, and uh, Patrisse Cullors came up with it in response to the Zimmerman, uh, the Zimmerman verdict after uh, Trayvon Martin's murder. Zimmer- Zimmerman was found innocent. Um, many people were outraged. It was such a blatant uh, example of vigilante violence, and so forth. So Alicia Garza. Uh, uh, you know, wrote that term and then they turned it into a social media platform. It really took off uh, a year later when uh, Mike Brown was murdered in Ferguson, Missouri. Protests uh, uh, captured national attention uh, and then that term became the rubric under which people rallied, protested, violated curfew, uh, etc. Now um, it, it evolved into an organization called the Black Lives Matter Global Network, but Black Lives Matter Global Network is one organization within a larger sort of constellation or landscape, if you will, Mm -hmm. of other organizations. And most of them operate now under a coalition called the Movement for Black Lives, which includes Black Youth Project 100 Mm -hmm. and just a myriad of local uh, organizations who have organized uh, protests around police violence in their own cities.
0: You're listening to Vocalo. I'm Jill Hopkins. Joining me in the studio, author of Making All Black Lives Matter, Reimagining Freedom in the 21st Century, Dr. Barbara Ransbury. I want to talk about the references in the book Uh, about the black feminist and the LGBTQ community activists. uh, That's something that some folks may not associate with Black Lives Matter. Can you tell us the influences and how they are used in Mm -hmm. your book? Absolutely. Well, one of the things I argue is that um, this
1: movement intervened uh, in the black freedom movement in some important ways. And one was to uh, disrupt or challenge the concept of the politics of respectability. And what politics of respectability refers to is this idea that we have to be kind of perfect citizens, um, wholesome, upright, according to certain kind of values, right, uh, in order to be deserving uh, of sympathy when we're victimized by police or or the system in some kind of way. And so they're rejecting those politics of respectability. In the context of that, they're also rejecting uh, notions of gender conformity, right? Many of the young people who uh, have been in the forefront of this movement, Charlene Carruthers from here in Chicago, um, Alicia Garza and uh, Patrice Colors, cullors um, Darnell Moore, many people around the country, uh, uh, Brittany Farrell from Ferguson, um, have, have also come out as queer, have either already been out as queer or, um, you know, have made uh, a public point of that. And they're really saying we don't have to conform to certain notions of leadership or respectability Mm -hmm. in order to be at the forefront of this movement, and we're going to bring our full selves into it, right? So as a historian, I'm familiar, and many people are, with the story of Bayard Rustin uh, in the 1950s and 60s, who advised Dr. King, was instrumental in organizing the March on Washington, et cetera, was a gay man, but was very much pushed into the closet because... um, A lot of leaders felt like he didn't portray a certain kind of image of the black community that they wanted to be in the forefront Mm. or that they thought would be uh, sympathetic for uh, other supporters of the movement. So, yeah, so it's been a radically inclusive movement in that regard and has really broken with a certain tradition of charismatic male leaders uh, by having women and particularly queer women at the forefront.
0: We're here with UIC history professor Barbara Ransby discussing her new book, Making Black Lives Matter, which breaks down the deep lineage of the Black Lives Matter movement and how it connects to the civil rights era and other activism of the past, both here in Chicago and around the country. There's a chapter in the book called Black Rage and Blacks in Power. and You mentioned that if rage is channeled and mobilized, collective rage can be simple. The refusal to tolerate the intolerable. Can you elaborate on that for us? Sure. Um, You know, I think uh, so
1: often we we celebrate civil discourse. And of course, we'd all rather be civil than screaming at each other, right? But there is a certain injustice in asking people to swallow and be polite in the face of um, violent repression, violent oppression. And so sometimes, you know, screaming truth to power, uh, sometimes going in the streets and re- refusing to behave politely or, or even legally, you know, is, is a valid form of protest. I mean, when you think of the civil rights movement, uh, people stress Dr. King as a proponent of nonviolence, which of course he was, but he was also a proponent of direct action. He was breaking the law. He went to jail. So, um, so I'm talking about rage in that context. And people were really uh, saying enough is enough around police violence and the lack of accountability. The other part of that, that chapter also talks about holding black elected officials accountable. Mm. That, um, you know, it's significant that this movement emerges uh, under the tenure of the first black president, historic, right? So so you have black people in the street protesting racism uh, when we've already, you know, quote unquote, won, uh, you know, it, in terms of having a black man in oh, the White we're House. We're in a
0: post-racial society.
1: Well, that's exactly what I try to debunk and they try to try to debunk, you know, that you can have individuals from, you know, Clarence Thomas to mayors who don't uh, enforce uh, you know proper police conduct that are actually perpetuating and a part of a you know, systemic racism, even though they themselves are phenotypically black people. And so I think it's very sophisticated of young activists to say, you know, we don't care in Baltimore, you know, when Freddie Gray uh, is murdered, you know, dies in police custody. You know, we don't care that that the mayor is black. We still feel this is an example of racism because it's a pattern. We see it all the time. Our lives are devalued. And we're going to hold people in charge accountable, whatever color they are.
0: There are many themes in your book, one of which is the reassertion of politicized black identity. Help me unpack that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it goes back to this question of post-racialism a little bit um, mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, the scenario is, you know, the civil rights movement ended uh, legal racism, legal segregation in this country. Um, and therefore, we can you know, all just see each other as individuals. We can be uh, colorblind. And, you know, what what these young activists said is, no, we see in our, you know, with our own eyes every day in our lives, in our communities, examples of specifically anti-black Racism, and we're going to call it out uh, from the overwhelming representation of black bodies in the prison system uh, to the um, underfunding of schools in black communities to police harassment uh, on the street disproportionately uh, black people. So, um, so that pattern constitutes uh, an example of anti-black racism, um, and and Charlene Carruthers' new book, Unapologetic, is you know, builds off of one of the slogans of the movement, Mm -hmm. unapologetically black. So they weren't going to say, oh, this is just an example of injustice, some sort of generic injustice. They were naming the pattern, which, of course, is deeply rooted in the history of white supremacy uh, in this country.
0: I'm Jill Hopkins. This is Vocalo. Joining me in the studio is Dr. Barbara Ransby, author of Making All Black Lives Matter. In the book, you've dedicated an entire chapter to the dynamics of Chicago and its roots to Black Lives Matter. You start off with the racist state of the city in the late 60s. We just celebrated, celebrated is the wrong word, but we just commemorated the 50th anniversary of the Democratic National Convention here in 1968. Can you give us more on that history? Yeah, I mean, you know,
1: Chicago has been ground zero for all kinds of uh, movements around racial and social justice for... Um, generation. So, um, so the fact that we have now many of the leaders of Black Lives Matter and Movement for Black Lives coming out of Chicago um, is not a surprise. Um, but I, I link it to you know the pattern in history of police corruption and police violence. We started off with your mentioning John Burge just died. You know the whole campaign here to get accountability for the victims of torture uh, in, in the John Burge case was a was a momentous um, campaign. Unprecedented victory in the in the uh, the city council decision to uh, you know to um, pass the reparations ordinance, um, but many of the young people who um, eventually organized under the rubric of the movement for Black Lives were influenced by these struggles. So there's a genealogy. There's not a direct line. Um, they're not all proteges of older activists, uh, but but there's a, a sense of continuity. I think that's important to uh, to point out. And of course, you know, really some unprecedented. Uh, victories and campaigns here in recent times, you know, around the the, the Bayanita campaign, mm-hmm. uh, which young activists in uh, BYP 100 and Asada's Daughters and others
0: uh, were involved in, which I
1: think really was a challenge for us to rethink electoral politics
0: in important ways. I want to talk more about uh, young leaders in these grassroots organizations like Asada's Daughters, like Veronica Morris Moore, like BYP 100 and BLM Shy. Can you talk about the traction from the community collaboration in the city and its effect moving forward to equity and equality? There are a number of
1: organizations, each of them populated by uh, passionate, smart, committed uh, young people. I think that's the most hopeful part of the story. Uh, I'm very interested. I mean, I'm a historian and a writer, but I'm also an activist You know, for many years. And um, I've worked recently with a coalition called the R3 Coalition, Resist, Reimagine, Rebuild. Chicago, which is where I come into regular contact with a lot of these young activists. And um, I'm seeing them work across organizational lines. I'm seeing them work across uh, neighborhood divides. And I think that's also, you know, a really hopeful, um, a hopeful sign. You know, people like um, uh, Aislinn uh, Pulley, who I quote in the book, uh, Paige May, um, uh, many of them uh, who have done enormous work here in Chicago, Uh, Janae Bansu, Uh, So they, you know, I see them working in their organizations, working in community, doing electoral work, but also having a longer term vision and also being uh, generous in their work with each
0: other, despite problems. You're listening to Vocalo. I'm Jill Hopkins. Joining me in the studio to discuss her book, Making All Black Lives Matter, Reimagining Freedom in the 21st Century, is Dr. Barbara Ransby. Now, I have to ask the, the question, Professor Ransby. Why do black lives matter? And why does it matter that we know that they matter in 2018?
1: Well, you know, I mean, there's sometimes controversy about the use of that term. Some people say, uh, well, black people shouldn't have to say to the world that we matter. Um, and people say, well, when you say black lives matter as a, uh emphatic statement, it's untrue. And, of course, that's part of the point. Um, but, of course, you know, black people have been a part of this country in... Uh, such crucial ways from the times that that our ancestors were enslaved and contributed free labor to the building of this country, to all kinds of cultural contributions, etc. So, I mean, that alone, one shouldn't even have to to lay out why one is deserving of humanity, right? Uh, recognition. Um, so, so all of those reasons. But of course, the history of this country is a history of white supremacist policies that. Uh, ended in law not that long ago, and still have not ended in practice. And so, uh, when we see today uh, what what many people call racial capitalism, which is uh, ways in which the economy, particularly, is particularly harsh and particularly um, uh, intense an in experience for uh, African Americans who are disproportionately impoverished, disproportionately in prison, um, disproportionately lost homes in the recession, et cetera, when we look at those patterns, we have to understand the racist history on which that rests. And so to say Black Lives Matter is to foreground that. It's certainly not to say other lives don't matter, uh, but it's to foreground that reality uh, and the pattern uh, that has suggested that some lives matter more than others.
0: We've been talking with Professor Barbara Ransby about the themes in her book, Making Black Lives Matter. Barbara, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Jill.